1: I'm your host, Al Smith, and I'm so excited that you joined us today to learn the faith a little bit more. You know that Archbishop Sheen uh, wrote a newspaper article for 30 years. And just think about the friendship that you would have with him uh, by reading his weekly newspaper column. Again, from 1949 to 1979. He gave words of encouragement, and so you think of the millions of souls that were touched by his writings. And so today we hope to touch you with a few of his audio reflections. And uh, we're going to be sharing with you uh, a talk entitled, Our Cross, and it'll be very powerful, trust me. And then we'll share a catechism lesson uh, on the topic of miracles. But before we do that, let's pray together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy now this reflection. From the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, entitled Our Cross.
2: One of the tests of the success of a mission is not the crowds that come, it is rather are there little children in the audience? And there were young ones scattered about the altar yesterday and here this morning again. And then one of the children, imagine, got up at 2 o'clock this morning and made for me some raisin bread. Greater love than this no woman hath, that she should arise at 2 o'clock in the morning to make raisin bread. Now you heard the story of Jonah, both in the epistle and in the gospel, first and second reading. You did not get the whole story of Jonah. Now I'm going to tell you the story of Jonah, and then I will give you the lesson from it. Jonah is listed as one of the twelve minor prophets. And... God sent him to the wicked city of Nineveh. Well, Jonah was a Jew. God to him was not the God of the Gentiles. Why should he go to pagan people? So Jonah took a boat to Spain. That probably was the Tarshish that is mentioned in the Gospel, in the Prophet. And on the way, a storm arose. And it is interesting that as you read that story of Job, now read it in your Bible. It's only about two or three pages long. It's the shortest book in the Scripture. And you often find God made a storm to arise. And God sent a fish into the sea, and so forth. And God arranged that the Joni should be swallowed up. Well, a storm came up. And the sailors, for the most part, were pagan sailors and rather superstitious, so they took lots. Maybe they got, got long and short straws. And everybody on board the boat had to draw a straw. And the one with the shortest straw, say, was the one who was guilty of the storm. Well, Jonah got the short straw. And he said, yes. He said, God told me to go and preach to the Gentiles. But I refused. And I'm the cause of this storm. Remember, the failure of one can be the cause of the failure of many. As the salvation of one can be the cause of the salvation of many. For example, one man stole a Babylonian coat in the Old Testament, and Joshua lost a battle on account of it. God said it was on account of that man that you lost the battle. So Jonah's tossed into the sea, and then he's swallowed by a big fish. It is not actually a whale that is mentioned, but at any rate, a big fish. I know of a teacher who was asking the boys after the story of Jonah, what lesson do you get from the story of Jonah? And the little boy said, I get the lesson that people make whales sick. (laughs) So Jonah is swallowed by a big fish. I was lecturing at the University of California last year, and at the end of the lecture, I was asked questions, and one student said, how was Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days? I said, I haven't the vaguest idea. But when I get to heaven, I shall ask Jonah. He said, suppose Jonah isn't there. I said, then you ask him. (laughs) So you, you have the prayer of Jonah in the belly of the whale. And then the whale spews him out on the land and again God gives her the order, go and preach penance to the city of Nineveh. Now that's the story that was read to you, as preaching of penance, and the king ordered it. But the very interesting part of of the story of Jonah is left out. Jonah wanted the people to be destroyed. You see, God said, I will destroy them if they do not do penance. Well, Jonah was afraid they would do penance, and then he would be accused of being a false prophet. And so Jonah went on a hill, and he was bald-headed. And he went on a hill overlooking the city of Nineveh, and the sun just scorched his bald head. And there was a little plant that began to grow, maybe a gourd, with a big leaf, and it shadowed the head of Jonah. And he was calm, peaceful, and cool. And then a little worm came and ate the plant. And then Jonah began to scorch again. And God said to him, You had nothing to do with that plant. And now when it withers away, you are angry. And God said, shall I not be mindful of the 120,000 people in Nineveh who know not their right hand from their left and their many cattle? This is the story of Jonah, God's concern for the Gentile people, for the missions, really. But we find it in the New Testament. See, our Lord speaks about it. He said... As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man must be in the belly of the earth for three days. In other words, as our blessed Lord would be crucified and buried for three days and then rise from the dead. So in the past, Jonah had undergone his passion, his Good Friday, in the belly of the fish, and then comes again to life on the shore. This is what is known in Scripture as a type. Incidentally, that's the way catechism should be taught in Bible history. By types. Our young people should be told the story in the Old Testament and then told about how it was fulfilled by our blessed Lord in the New Testament. If you have two hours and a half, I'll give you an example of it. Our Blessed Lord said to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews had disobeyed our Lord. They were bitten by serpents. God said to Moses make a serpent of brass hang it up on the crotch of a tree and everyone who looks upon that brass serpent will be cured of snake bite now there's nothing in a looking at a brass serpent that's going to cure snake bite nothing but it was a test of their faith would they obey God And all who looked upon that serpent of brass were cured of the poisonous bite. Now our Lord comes along and says, I'm that serpent. This is one of the few instances in which the same word that is applied to evil is applied to good. Another is the lion. The devil is a lion. Our Lord is the lion of Judah. Meaning that when the Antichrist comes, he will act like Christ so our Blessed Lord now says as Moses lifted up the serpent so I'll be lifted up on the crotch of a tree and as that brass serpent looked like the serpent that bit the Israelites but had no poison in it so our Blessed Lord on the cross would look as if he were guilty of sin full of the poison of human guilt but as the serpent of brass had no poison in it, so our Lord had no sin in him. And all who would look upon him would be healed. Healed of what? Of guilt. I always think of that whenever I pass the Blessed Sacrament. I, I have a, a three-room apartment. I have a, a bedroom, and then I have a, what was originally a small bedroom which is the chapel with the Blessed Sacrament, and then I have a study and a tiny little kitchen, which is big enough for my culinary talent. And whenever I pass the Blessed Sacrament, and I would do it a hundred times a day in the apartment, I always think of this passage of our Lord so that I look upon the serpent on the tree, our blessed Lord, to be healed of the poison of sin. Now this is what is known as a type. And I say that's the way religion should be taught, particularly the Scripture. Because the Old Testament is full of types. We, we do not have time to mention a few others, but just take my word for it, and you'll find them fulfilled in our Lord. Now our Lord, you see today, in this Gospel says, Jonah is a type. He's a type of death and resurrection. Jonah in the sea, our Lord in the tomb. Jonah out of the sea, Christ out of the tomb. That is the Old Testament fact and the New Testament fact. Now the lesson. The lesson is that unless there is a cross in our lives there will never be a resurrection the Christian law of life is we have to die in order to live now I do not mean and he did not mean physically dying he meant mortification self-denial the application of the cross in our lives. So that unless we die to ourselves, we cannot live with him. We do not like the cross in our lives. As a matter of fact, we'd like to escape it. As I told you last night, that's the essence of the demonic, the escape from mortification and cross and the penance. On one occasion, the Greeks came to our Lord. And we do not know what the Greeks asked our Lord. But we can guess it because of the answer of our blessed Lord to the Greeks. I think the Greeks said to our Lord, and this was within two weeks of his crucifixion, if you stay here among these people, they're going to kill you. Why don't you leave this land? Come to Athens. We're the country of the wise men. We've only killed one great mind in our history, and that was Socrates, and we regret it ever since that we gave him that poison. So if you stay here, you will die. If you come to Athens, you will live. That they must have said, because our Lord could not quote, for example, the prophet to him. He could not quote, Isaiah chapter 53 and say, no, it has been prophesied of me that I must undergo Good Friday in order to have Easter. So he appealed to nature because the Greeks could understand that. And he said, unless the seed falling to the ground dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, It comes forth unto life. Bears fruit ten twenty and a hundredfold. That was a lesson the Greeks could understand. And this is the lesson of Jonah, the lesson of our blessed Lord, and this is the essence of Christianity. Remember, Christianity is not easy. That's the reason we have the interest in Oriental religions today. Because, well, it gives us the joy of having a religion, but it does not cost us very much. But Christianity costs something. Grace is not cheap. We just cannot walk through life into the kingdom of heaven. Now let me see how long I've been talking to you. You see, I do not want to uh, talk too long, but look at the interest here. So I'll tell you a story. Come here, you in the middle. Come here to me, the boy in the middle. This young man here. Come here. How old are you? four he is four years old and here was a little boy who was looking up here very very interested now so you create the problem of how long how much more should I talk before will you get bored to death Uh, listen I will tell you I'll tell you a funny story about long talkers so you go back to your place now and listen to it I was once giving a talk in San Francisco and a gentleman spoke before me and as he arose, his wife who was in the front table handed him the program and she wrote on the back of it a big K-I-S-S, Phyllis. And when he finished talking, I said, wasn't that nice of your wife to send you that message. Always oh, he said, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It means keep it short, stupid. <laughs> now, coming back to the lesson of Jonah, our blessed Lord, and the Greeks. We have to work out our salvation. And there will be crosses in our lives that we make through mortification and self-denial. And then there are other crosses that are imposed on us. For example, sickness, particularly of children. Now, what, what do we do with crosses? poor health, for example, and then injustice from others, well, we have to unite it with our Lord on the cross in order to use it to purchase our eternal salvation. About a year ago, I was talking to Pope Paul VI, and I said to him, you're well-named, named Paul. Paul, as he went from city to city, was stoned, from Lystra to Derby to Antioch, Pisidia. And so I said, you are stoned by your own. Yes, he said. I opened my mail at midnight, and in almost every letter is a thorn. And when I put my head on my pillow an hour or two later, I really lay it on a crown of thorns. But he said, I cannot tell you what ineffable joy I have to suffer. And then he quoted the 24th verse of St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. I fill up in my own flesh the sufferings that are wanting to the passion of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. In other words, I suffer all of this for the sake of the church. That's how we use suffering. I think the great tragedy of this world is the suffering that goes to waste. People suffer, and they have no one whom they can love. Love does not kill pain, but it diminishes it. I was lecturing in a city in Florida about two years ago, and I saw four or five wheelchairs in the front of the stage. After my lecture, I jumped off the stage and went down to talk to the people in wheelchairs. Well, over against the wall was something that looked like a Grecian statue, all white. And I went over, and it was a woman in an iron lung. And she was swathed in white. You couldn't see the arms. The only part of her body that she could move was her head. And she said, I'm a convert of yours. said I've never seen you before no she said it but was it was from reading some of your books and I said do you understand your cross and she said yes I do I am not suffering for my own soul I am suffering for other souls to save them in other words there was the death in order that there might be the life in others. I have a friend who spent 14 years in a communist prison and he was tortured during these years because he always preached the gospel of the Lord to the other prisoners. And he would be taken out from amidst the other prisoners as he was talking about the good Lord and he would be put on a spigot and turned and then his heels would be beaten with an iron rod as they turned him. And I, then he said another time they put me in a cell with starving rats. And I said, what did you think about when you were put in the cell with starving rats? Well, he said, I thought about the words of our Lord on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Those were the Aramaic words our Lord spoke from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, he said, I'm a Hebrew, born a Jew, so I understand the the language well. He said, these words are in the past tense. So our Lord is not saying, why are you abandoning me? But why in the past did you? So he said, our Lord was abandoned by the very fact that he was born. He was abandoned by us. Our Lord, therefore, he said, must have been looking to the joy of resurrection. Having joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he said, he considered, therefore, his crucifixion is past because he knew that he would come to life. So he said, that's the way I regarded the rats. I have trust in the Lord. I'm not going to perish here. I'm in his hands. I'm going to consider the rats as all finished. So he said, some of the rats sat down and philosophized. They were too hungry to move about. And others nibbled at the rags on my feet. And after five days, they had not touched me, so the Communists took me out of the prison. They knew that it was useless to keep me there with the starving rats. Summing it all up, as Christians, we have one law. Good Friday, Easter. Nothing is ever accomplished that is worthwhile without some self-denial and mortification. If you have a cross, bear it. It is His. And you will be glad of it and for it someday. Your salvation is assured. I slipped His fingers, I escaped His feet. I ran and hid for him I feared to meet. One day I passed him, fettered on a tree. He turned his head and looked and beckoned me. Neither by speed nor strength could he prevail. Each hand and foot was pinioned by a nail. He could not run nor clasp me if he tried, but with his eyes he bade me reach his side. For pity's sake thought I, I'll set you free. Nay, take this cross, said he, and follow me. And so did I follow him, who could not move an uncaught captive in the hands of love. I love you.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello Radio Maria family and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed that reflection from Archbishop Sheen entitled Our Cross. And we all have our cross to bear. Uh, But uh, thanks be to God, it is our cross. For God gives us only what we can handle. Uh, He's faithful to us in scripture when he says that to us. That he will only give you what you can bear. And uh, so he will give us the grace through the intercession of our Blessed Mother, uh, what we need to persevere. And so I want to share with you now a catechism reflection. Uh, This is a 50-lesson series that Bishop Sheen put together a number of years ago. And so we're studying lesson number seven, which is entitled Miracles. And so I would encourage you to sit back and relax now and enjoy this catechism lesson.
2: Peace be to you. It will be recalled that we said there were three motives of credibility, that is to say, three reasons why one might believe in anyone, in particular in the person of Christ. We name three conditions. First, that he be pre-announced, that we have already discussed. Uh, The second motive of credibility was uh, that if he came from God, that there should be certain signs or wonders or miracles to attest his truthfulness. Now a word about miracles. Let us recall the fact that miracles are not a violation of the laws of nature. God and the universe are not on opposite sides. Let us take this example. Nearly all the great railroad stations where there are junctions of tracks and lines running side by side, meeting and intersecting, have always in their midst what is known as a control tower. From that little building, all lines are directed and signals sent in various ways. The pull of a great lever and a mighty train passes on its appointed way. The working of another lever sends a freight train into a siding until the express train is passed. All railway traffic would be disorganized if the important work were not carried on in that controlled tower. In fact, there would be disorder and collisions. Now, this is a feeble illustration of the laws of nature. For well, the whole universe works upon fixed lines, We cannot see God's signals, nor understand how he conveys his power to the forces of nature. We do not see him work his levers. We only know that his laws obey him with an exactness and a promptness unknown in any railway system of the world. When there is a miracle that seems to be at variance with the universal law of gravitation, there's merely a higher power introduced. The law of gravitation can be actually overcome by the right arm of a little child. The ball, according to the natural laws, ought to fall to the ground. When it's bounced, it bounds up to the ceiling. But now the hand of a little child can stop the operation of the law of gravitation by catching the ball. When God, therefore, puts forth the strength of his arm, he can suspend the action of some of the laws that he has made in order to manifest his goodness and his justice and the fact that he is Lord of creation. But in this case, to witness the truth of the messenger and the message, Our Lord worked many miracles. Here are some of the characteristics about them. We have already hinted at this idea. First, he worked them as signs to convince men of the fact that he who came to work these miracles was the one that was promised. He never worked a miracle to amaze a multitude. He never worked a miracle to satisfy his hunger or his thirst. He never worked a miracle to obtain a living. He never received money for the things which he accomplished. He refused to convert the stones of the wilderness into bread to satisfy his own hunger or to cause water to gush out of a rock to slake his thirst. Instead, he asked a woman to let down her bucket to give him a drink. Our Lord explained why he worked miracles. He said, if I act like the son of my father, then let my actions convince you where I cannot. So you will recognize and learn to believe that the father is in me and I in him. And on another occasion, he said, the actions which my Father has enabled me to achieve, those very actions which I perform, bear me witness that it is the Father who has sent me. If it was God's will to give a revelation, miracles were very well fitted to certify and guarantee that message is true. If a miracle occurs in connection with the word or act of a person who professes to deliver a revelation from God, the coincidence proclaims the divine approval of both the teacher and the message. The miracles, therefore, were seals which God set upon his revelation of Christ as Christ, his divine Son. And if Jesus himself shows that it is by his own power that he works a miracle. He proves himself to be the very Lord of the universe... and to be God. Another characteristic of the miracle... and miracles of our blessed Lord... is that there is nothing silly or unreasonable... in any of them that were recorded. They were subject to the tests of everyone. The vast majority of the miracles... Were never miracles which took place in the inner secret places of people's lives, but in what might be called the physical world, where they could be verified scientifically. Our Lord never performed a miracle unless there were witnesses present. When he healed the leper, there was a great multitude following him. In the healing of the centurion's servant, he did not even go where the servant was dying. When he raised Peter's mother in law from her sickbed, the apostles and others were present. Our Lord never went up into a mountain to perform some miracle alone with no person being present and then come out and say that he had done it. His works were accomplished before the eyes of multitudes of people. And that is why none of the miracles of our blessed Lord were ever actually denied, not even his resurrection. The apostles were forbidden to teach it and to preach it, but the miracle itself was never denied. A third characteristic of his miracles is that they are inseparable from his person. His miracles differed from that of prophets and others inasmuch as theirs was an answer to a prayer granted by a higher power but his flowed from the majestic life that was resident in him. That is why St. John calls them in his gospel signs or works, meaning that they were the sort of thing that might be expected from him, being what he was. They were evidences of his divine revelation, but they were even more. For they testified to his redemptive action as the savior of the world. By healing the palsied and the lame and the blind, Christ clothed with visible form his power to cure spiritual diseases. These physical diseases were to him symbols of that which was spiritual. He often passed from the physical fact of a miracle to its symbolic and spiritual meaning. For example, blindness was a symbol of blindness to the light of faith. And by casting out devils from those who were possessed, he pointed out his victory over the powers of evil, whereby men would be freed from slavery to evil and restored to moral liberty. If you expel the miracles from the life of Christ, you destroy the identity of Christ and the Gospels. Even a neutral attitude toward the miraculous element in the Gospels is impossible. The claim to work miracles is not the least important element of our Lord's teachings. Nor are the miracles which were wrought by him merely an ornament to his life. The miraculous is interwoven with his entire life. The moral integrity of our Lord's character is dependent upon the reality of his miracles. For if he was a deceiver, he was not what he claimed to be. Therefore, we cannot put asunder two things which God has joined together. Namely, the beauty of Christ's character and the reality of the miracles which he worked. How many miracles did he work? Well, the specific number of miracles that are mentioned in the Gospels are thirty-five. Three of these miracles tell of raising of the dead, one a child, the other a young man, and the other an adult. Nine relate to nature, and 23 to healing. In addition to these, there are miracles related to the life of Christ himself, like the virgin birth, resurrection, ascension, and so forth. But though there are only 35 specific miracles that are mentioned, it must not be thought these are the only miracles that our blessed Lord ever worked. Listen to the way St. John concludes his gospel. There is much else besides that Jesus did. If all of it were put in writing, I do not think the world itself would contain the books which would have to be written. There must have been miracles beyond counting. And that is why when the multitude had witnessed one miracle, they said, can the Christ be expected to do more miracles at his coming than this man has done? In other words, it was pre-announced that when the Messiah or the Christ came, he would work miracles. But this one has worked miracles in abundance. Therefore, he must be the Christ. Now we're going to take one miracle in particular and study it, and that is the most important one of all, namely the resurrection. There are five distinct accounts of the resurrection in the New Testament. Four are of the Gospels, one of St. Paul. It is to be remembered that St. Paul had conversed with Peter and James, about three years after his conversion, and therefore was in personal relationship with the apostles. Uh, These five distinct records give 11, at least 11, accounts of the resurrection of our blessed Lord and of his various appearances, in one instance an appearance to 500 people. The fact is that our blessed Lord died on the cross, was buried in hundred pounds of spices, as was the custom, and a watch or a guard was set. In the history of the world, only one tomb has ever had a rock roll before it, and a soldier set to guard it to prevent a dead man from rising. And that was the Tomb of Christ on the evening of the Friday call good. What spectacle could be more ridiculous than armed soldiers keeping their eyes on a corpse? But sentinels were set, lest the dead walk, the silent speak, and the pierced heart quicken to the throb of life. They said he was dead, They knew he was dead. They said he would never rise again. And yet they watched. They remembered that he called his body the temple, and that in three days after they had destroyed it, he would rebuild it. They recalled, too, that he had compared himself to Jonas, and said that as Jonas was in the belly of the whale for three days, so would he be in the belly of the earth for three days and then would rise again. After three days, Abraham received back his son Isaac, who was offered in sacrifice. They were familiar with that idea. For three days, Egypt was in darkness. It was not of nature. On the third day, God came down on Mount Sinai. And now, once again, there was worry about the third day. Early Saturday morning, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees broke the Sabbath and presented themselves to Pilate, saying, Sir, we have recalled it to memory that this deceiver, while he yet lived, said, I am to rise again after three days. Give orders, then, that his tomb shall be securely guarded until the third day, or perhaps his disciples will come and steal him away. If they should then say to the people, he has risen from the dead, this last deceit would be more dangerous than the old. A request for a guard until the third day had more reference to Christ's words about his resurrection than it did to the fear of the apostle stealing a corpse and propping it up like a living thing in simulation of a resurrection. But Pilate was in no mood to see this group they were the reason why he had condemned innocent blood. He had made his own official investigation. Christ was dead. He would not submit to the absurdity of using Caesar's armies to guard a dead Jew. And Pilate therefore said to them, You have guards away with you. Make it secure as best you know how. The watch was to prevent violence, The seal was to prevent fraud. There must be a seal, and the enemies would seal it. There must be a watch, and the enemies must keep it. The certificates of the death and resurrection must be signed by the enemies themselves. The Gentiles were satisfied through nature that Christ was dead. And the Jews were satisfied through the law that he was dead. And then, as the Gospel of Matthew puts it, and they went and made the tomb secure, putting a seal on the stone and setting a guard over it. The king lay in state with his guard about him. And the most astounding fact about this spectacle of vigilance over the dead was that the enemies of Christ expected the resurrection. But his friends did not. It was the believers who were the skeptics. It was the unbelievers who were credulous. His followers needed and demanded proofs before they would be convinced. Now suppose we do not accept the witnesses of the resurrection and other proofs of miracles attesting the trustworthiness of Christ. How explain then the empty tomb? How account for the fact that the apostles went about preaching the resurrection and no one denied it? Well, the two popular explanations that are given by those who deny the resurrection are the following. First, the lie theory. This theory says that the apostles lied about the resurrection, as well as every other witness who claimed that he had seen the risen Christ. Now this theory is manifestly very false. For what chance was there of persuading the world that he had risen from the dead if he had not done so? There was nothing less than the conviction of the Lord's resurrection could have induced men to have ventured their lives on it. Furthermore, their conduct proved that they believed in it overwhelmingly. They preached the crucifixion in the very place where he was crucified and in the very place where they had to suffer for preaching it. Persons do not suffer for what they believe to be false. The resurrection was not a lie. But there's another theory to explain away the resurrection and it can be put in popular psychological language of the day as follows. This theory holds that the apostles were very anxious to see uh, the risen Savior. They had heard him say that he would rise from the dead. And all of these words about the resurrection seeped down into their subconsciousness. The ideas rested there as a kind of a desire. Then Good Friday there came the terrible defeat and crucifixion. They knew their cause was lost. And it was that their very desire to see the resurrection became the father to the thought that there was a resurrection. Having been defeated in their messianic hopes by seeing their savior killed and crucified, they now began, according to this theory, to imagine his resurrection. They believed that they had seen So thoroughly were they convinced that he said he would rise. Now, this theory is false for many reasons. First, it does not correspond at all with facts. The apostles themselves knew the difference between a trance and reality. In fact, there are many passages in the scriptures concerning this difference. Then, too, the appearances did not take place when the disciples were at prayer or at worship or subject or when they might have been subject to religious fancies but the appearances of the risen Christ took place in the ordinary everyday occupations when they were going for a walk or seated at supper or out fishing they took place in the most trivial of circumstances quite different from that which enthusiasts would have imagined or where visions were likely to occur namely in sleep and two the most astounding thing about the resurrection is that no one expected it the Lord indeed said that he would rise from the dead none of his followers believed it that is why the women brought spices on Easter Sunday morn and they brought spices why to anoint and embalm a dead body Not to greet a risen one. Furthermore, the appearances of Christ were not while people were looking for it. No one was anticipating him, even hoping for a resurrection. When Mary Magdalene, for example, found the tomb empty, it never occurred to her that he had come to life. She said that somebody had moved him from one burial place to another. And furthermore, when the news of the empty tomb was brought to Peter and John before they had seen the risen Lord, their exclamation was, Oh, it's a woman's story. You know how women are, always imagining things. There was one apostle that remained doubtful for a whole week. And that was Thomas. Then another argument against this vision or subjective or psychological theory is, that visions do not occur to different persons simultaneously. A man's private illusions, like his dreams, are his own. Men do not dream at once, and all at the same time exactly the same dream. Nor is there any evidence that when Christ appeared to the 500, that any one of them doubted the reality of it? Then, too, as regards this subjective theory, a vision, for example, could never... Roll away the stone from the door of the tomb. And there was the Jewish guard, there were soldiers there. Furthermore, persons could not have honestly visited the tomb and found it empty if the body were there all the time. It would never have had that kind of a vision. If the resurrection were merely an illusion, the touching of the body of Christ, the putting of the finger into the hand, and the hand into the side, as Thomas did, would certainly have cured any such illusion. Furthermore, when our Lord appeared, he ate food. They saw the food vanish. He took bread. They saw the bread break. On another occasion, he gave them bread and fish, and they were satisfied of their hunger. And this certainly does not happen when there's only a dream or an illusion. And so the fact is that none of the apostles expected a resurrection. They had to be convinced. They had to be convinced the hard way as Thomas had to be convinced. Believe me, the skeptics of today cannot compare with the skeptics of those days, namely the apostles. They were the doubters. And when they were convinced, they proved that they believed in it by having their throats cut for that cause. So that our blessed Lord went before the world with another argument of his divinity, namely miracles were a sign of his divinity, now that he had risen from the dead, he asked men to be prepared to die to what was low in them in order that they might rise again.
0: God you are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I want to thank my good friend Anthony at uh, FultonSheen.com for providing these quality recordings to us today. Uh, The website uh, FultonSheen.com has what I like to say the largest library on the internet today. Uh, There is a free uh, downloadable phone app that you can uh, put onto your iPhone or your Android device. And there you can then listen to Bishop Sheen Uh, through your cell phone, any time of the day. And there are downloads for your computer and your iPad and all your devices. So uh, everything Fulton Sheen, hundreds of hours of recordings, all for pennies. And so that website, FultonSheen.com. And again, my thanks to my good friend Anthony for helping us uh, put this show together today. And I want to encourage you to bring a friend uh, next week and uh, grow our apostolate. Uh, Bishop Sheen has words for all, and uh, he is known as the servant of all. And so we hope to uh, build our audience over the years. And so please pray for us here at Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. And we would ask you to continue to uh, stay tuned as we have so much good programming to share with you. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.
0: You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.